I love our new venue. What do you guys think about Studio B? This is cool? I agree. I think this is pretty cool. We have a lot of new stuff this morning. We have a new venue, Studio B. We have new opportunities through this venue to reach out to new people and new places in our community. We got lots of empty seats. I started my ministry life a little over a decade ago uh, doing small groups ministry. And all of the small groups that I led and all of the small groups leaders that I trained to lead small groups, we always talked about empty chairs. It's important that wherever you are, you always have empty chairs to remind you that there are people in your life who are far away from God, that are outside of His church, that are not involved in the body of Christ, they're not in community with the Lord or with believers. And so these empty chairs that you see around you this morning should be there as a reminder to you that two out of three people that live right out here in Highland Village, Flower Mound, Louisville, Double Oak, Corinth, all of this area around us, roughly two out of three in every one of those communities is far away from God. We got plenty of room here to bring them in. If you didn't notice, there are some empty chairs around you, but there's also more chairs stacked up in the back. There are 50 chairs here. We can seat 110 in this auditorium. So we got some growing to do, and I'm excited about that. That is a new opportunity for us to reach out into new places and new people and share the love of Christ, to live out the vision and the mission of Elevation Church, which is leading people so that they will know Jesus personally, so that they can grow in their faith through relationships, and so they can go and share the love of Christ with others. So Studio B gives us a great new opportunity to continue in that uh, vision and that mission that we have been given and have been living for the last 14 months that we've been meeting as a church. So I'm very excited about that. Other new things that we got going on this morning. We have a new monitor right here because we have speakers and sound and microphones and all that. So don't be surprised if at some point your pastor just goes head over heels right onto the front row because I'm not used to that being there and I'll be walking around like this. And just, If that happens, I'll just keep talking. Y'all just keep listening. If I don't keep talking, you know, resuscitate me or something and we'll go from there, okay? So lots of new stuff. We got lots of new opportunities. We have some new people here this morning. I just want you guys to know I'm not a comedian, so the comedy that you've heard so far, I know it's really bad. Don't judge me on that. I'm just here to deliver a message that the Lord has given to me. And the message this morning, as Jim alluded to, is the little mats at the door and here on the stage say is, it's called Got Dirt. That may sound like a really strange title for a message from the Bible, a really strange title for a sermon. But I'll tell you what, the reason I came up with that title was kind of weird, and it really goes back to this time last year. It's springtime, right? I mean, y'all were outside this morning. You noticed it's spring? I love spring. Spring is like my favorite season in Texas. Lived here my whole life. We really only have have four seasons for, I mean, like two of our seasons only last like two or three weeks apiece, right? Spring and fall. They're just, they're short. We have really brutal summers and really weird winters, but we have really beautiful, wonderful springs and falls. And I love spring because of a couple of things. Number one, I'm an outdoorsman. I like to hunt, fish, camp, do all of those kinds of things, right? And spring is a phenomenal time if you're a fisherman because the, the fish are waking up from their, you know, they're cold-blooded. And so when the water is cold all winter long, they don't bite very much. They don't eat a lot. But in the spring, the water warms up. They, they get a little, you know, more active. They start to bite. They are easier to catch. And I love spring for that. Fishing is great in the spring. Hunting in the spring, not something you normally think about in the spring, but I love to hunt. Turkey season, my favorite type of hunting is in the spring. 
But there's something else that happens in the spring that really makes me love the spring a lot. Another activity that I like to do outdoors, one that I never thought I would do, one that when I was a younger man, I thought, now that's just not something men should be doing. That is woman's work, okay? Y'all can throw tomatoes at me later for the woman's work comment. I'm just saying, that's the way I used to think. But I like to garden. I like to landscape. Trina and I, my wife and I, became homeowners about 10, 11, 12 years ago, something like that. I had never really done any, I mean, like I mowed the yard, but I never did real landscaping, never planted flowers, never had a garden. I started getting interested in landscaping, gardening, growing flowers. Yes, I admit it, I'm a man who likes to grow flowers. But I kill my own food so I don't lose anything off my man card, okay? So I like to grow flowers. I admit it, I love it. We have a beautiful flower bed that goes all the way around our little pool in our backyard and we got a big flower bed out in the front and every spring it's like my frustrated farmer comes out and I go get dirty. I like to get down in that soil and in that dirt, turn it over, smell that earth, get it up under my nails, plant plants and then watch them grow and bloom and flourish all summer long. And last year I was in the midst of doing that last spring and I got done one day and I went inside and I was about to take a shower and I looked at myself and we have a big mirror in our bathroom. I looked at myself in that mirror and I'm all, you know, in my grubby going to work in the garden clothes, right? And I'm covered in sunscreen, bug spray, sweat, and a whole bunch of dirt. Filthy, nasty, to the nth degree dirt. It was so far under my nails, it was past that little white part. I don't even know what that part's called. You know, that part you normally get dirt under? It was way past that. It, it was so bad, it was in all the little creases and crevices and the lines in my hands. And when I washed my hands, the dirt didn't come off because it had like replaced the oil in my skin. And was, I mean, it was like in. And I stood there and I looked at myself in that mirror and I thought, this must be what I look like when I stand before a holy God. Filthy, dirty, nasty, covered in my sin, my spiritual dirt. And I was like, I stood there and looked at myself and that thought hit me and it was just one of those moments, you know. Ah, that'll preach. And so here we are, it'll preach this morning. And it's not going to preach this morning because it was a great idea of Todd's. It's going to preach this morning because it's a great idea of God's and it's in the Bible. There is a lot of scripture that talks about our sin, our spiritual dirt. And when I started looking at how I wanted to communicate this, or more importantly, how God wanted to communicate this morning, I thought first about Paul writing to the Romans. In the book of Romans, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, the book of Romans, Paul the Apostle Paul had a lot to say about sin as he wrote to this people, the Roman people. And as this, this book is a letter to the Romans. And Paul wrote it a thousand, couple thousand years ago and he was writing to them about what it means to follow Christ and how they could follow Christ and, and have everything that Jesus came to offer. And he talked a lot about sin. He talked a lot about dirt, spiritual dirt, in this book of Romans. If you would, go to Romans chapter 3. But I want to give you some context before we get to those verses. When Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, it's important that we understand the context that he wrote it from. The context that he wrote it from is this. Paul is trying to share with them the message of Jesus, the good news, what we call the gospel. 
Now, these Romans were, were far away from God. They didn't grow up with the traditions that the Jewish culture did. The Jewish culture would call Romans and anybody else that was a non-Jew, they called them Gentiles. And so the, the Gentiles, and most of us, by the way, probably trace our lineage back through Gentile origins. Most of us probably do not descend from Jews. Some of you probably do, but most of us are Gentiles. So I'm glad Paul was writing to the Gentiles. Paul was teaching the Gentiles the ways of Jesus. He was taking the gospel outside of the Jewish culture to the other cultures of the world. And as he wrote this letter... He was kind of combating some false teaching that was going on. There were a lot of Jews who were teaching at that time that if a Gentile wanted to follow Jesus, they had to do it by following the old Judaic law. The, the, the law. You've heard it in the Bible. If you've ever read in the Old Testament, it, there's a lot of stuff about the law. And the law was the law that God gave to the Jewish culture, to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And then along the several hundred years uh, between Paul writing this letter and, and when God gave it, they added several hundred new laws. Men did. And so by the time Paul's writing this letter, the Jewish culture is trying to keep like 600 plus Judaic laws, 600 plus legal things that they had to do to be righteous before God. And Paul is writing to the Romans to explain to them that that is now a false teaching that these, these Gentiles don't have to become Jews by practicing the law in order to follow Christ. So here we are, verse 21, if you would read with me. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Verse 23, key verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this morning I want to tell you, just like Paul told the Romans, he said, even the Jews sinned and fell short of the glory of God. The Jews were not righteous before God because they practiced 600 plus laws. Not because they made sacrifices to God. Not because they went to the temple. The Jews were not righteous before God because of their lineage, their bloodline. The Jews were righteous before God only if they had faith in Christ. Jesus is the only one, the only thing that can wash our spiritual sin off of us and make us clean before God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's standard is, is perfection. His standard is perfection. He's holy. No sin resides in Him, cannot abide sin, cannot deal with sin in His immediate presence. God's holy. We're not. We're sin-stained. We're fallen. From the time Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, we have, mankind, been sin-stained. And no keeping of the law, no good behavior, no lineage or birthright can make us clean. Only Jesus, Paul says, can make us clean. And we all need to be clean because we have all sinned. He says the only way, though, to step into that cleanliness is to have faith. To have faith. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean, faith in Jesus Christ? What do I have to have faith in? I have to have faith in Jesus. But what does that mean? Well, the, the, the salvation, the cleanliness that comes, that washes our sin away through Jesus, is when we have faith that He is who He says He is. 
Who did Jesus say that he is? He says that he is the one and only Son of God, that he is God incarnate, God with us. He was the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, came to live on the earth and walk among us, lead a perfect life, and eventually died a sacrificial death. But he was the God-man, and he is still living with God in heaven, as God in heaven. Jesus is God. He is who he says he is. And part B, that he does what he says he will do. This is how we get clean. We have faith that Jesus is who he says he is, God's one and only son, that he does what he says he will do. What is it that he says he will do? He says that he will cleanse us, wash us, forgive us for our sins. He will take away our spiritual dirt and make us clean before a holy God, before his Father in heaven. If we have faith that Jesus is who he says he is, that he does what he says he will do, then, Paul says, we can receive that cleanliness, that cleansing that comes only through Jesus. And ladies and gentlemen, that is why we need Jesus. Because Paul said we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Maybe you don't agree with Paul. Just pause for a second. Do not raise your hands. Raise your hands in your head, but do not raise your physical hand. Think about this. Have you sinned? Are you a sinner? Have you ever done anything wrong? Even the little white lie sin. Maybe you just have a little speck of sand on you. It's not full on mud. It's not dirt like when I was gardening. Maybe you just have a little speck of sand. See that speck of sand, that little speck of dirt, that little tiny flake under your fingernail. Where you just sinned a little bit is enough to separate you from God's holiness, from His righteousness. His standard is perfection. We cannot achieve it. By the way, the Jews couldn't achieve it by trying to keep 612 or whatever it was laws. That's why God sent Jesus for the Jews and for the Gentiles. Because we need Him. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, His perfect standard. He can't accept us in our current condition, but Jesus can make us clean so that we can enter into God's presence in this life. We can live with God in this life, making this life oh so much better, but even more importantly, in our eternal lives, because we're all eternal beings, and we will reside in one of two eternal places. One we call hell, and it's a real place. It's not a cartoon thing with a cartoon devil and a red unitard with a pitchfork. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about eternal separation from God or heaven, eternal community with God. We have one of two eternal destinations for our eternal souls. We will live forever. Our bodies will die, but we will live. And if we live in this life with God, cleansed, this life gets so much better. And we have the one of the two destinations that most of us would desire, I believe, for our eternal lives. So we need Jesus. And that's why God sent him to cleanse us and to take care of our dirt problem. Now, Jesus did something really cool in Scripture, that's, or something really cool that's recorded in Scripture, that demonstrated all of this physically. And I want to go there this morning and talk about that for just a few minutes. If you would turn in your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus says, is washing his disciples' feet. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world 
and to go to his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I love that phrase. Jesus loved his people who were in the world to the end. I love it. It's setting up what he's about to do. He's about to do something really fantastic. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Pause. A couple of cool things going on in these first few verses. Number one, it's the Passover festival. Passover was simply the Jewish tradition of celebrating one of the most amazing moments in the history of the world. When God was setting the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt, one of the things that he did, one of the last, like the night before they left, God told Moses to have all of the, the Israelites slaughter a spotless lamb, their best lamb, and to paint their doorposts with the blood of that lamb. And that was a sign because he was sending basically the death angel to come and take the firstborn from every family in Egypt. And the Israelites were passed over because they had painted their doorposts with the blood of this unblemished lamb, this perfect lamb. But the Egyptians were not. And that was one of the, like, it was the ultimate, the final trigger that let Pharaoh let Moses' people go. The Israelites were gone right after that. And so from that moment on, they celebrated the Passover feast. It was a big festival. And so it's that time of the year. They're celebrating the Passover festival. They're getting together. They're having meals. They're hanging out. They're celebrating. They're remembering. It's a great thing. But we also see that Judas has already begun to be tempted to turn Jesus over. Judas like a lot of the other uh, um, Israelites, Jews of the time, was not expecting the Messiah, the Savior, to come and be this meek, mild-mannered man, this man who was, you know, he was power under control. They expected some warrior king to come and boot the Romans right on out and, and set them free from Roman occupation and, and oppression. And so Judas was getting really frustrated with this Jesus character. He'd been living with him, walking with him, following him for three years, and he wasn't seeing what he thought he should see. And so he thought, this guy's not what we're looking for. And, and he knew some people we're out to get Jesus, and he basically was being tempted. Right here, we know the devil has already begun to tempt him to turn Jesus over. So right here in the first couple of verses, there's some cool stuff happening in this passage. Let's pick up with verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Pause. Seems a little odd, doesn't it? I mean, wasn't Jesus like the general, the ringleader? He was like the big man in charge. But he does something weird. He washes his disciples' feet. Well, it's a little more weird than weird. It's a little stranger than strange. What really is going on here, Jesus is doing something extremely controversial. He has his disciples in this room. They've come and gathered to celebrate the Passover festival. They're hanging out in this guy's house. They're coming together to, 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 to worship and to celebrate and to feast and all of this. And Jesus, their leader, makes himself like a slave or a servant. Because that's who would normally wash feet in this culture. It would have been a slave, an owned person, somebody who was below humanity. I mean, not literally, but in their viewpoint, in their cultural context, somebody that was more like an animal than a person, 
a slave, a servant, would have normally washed the feet. In Jewish culture, a very patriarchal culture, if it wasn't a slave or, or a servant that did the foot washing, maybe in some circumstances a wife might wash her husband's feet, children might wash their parents' feet, and in a lot of cases, disciples washed the feet of their rabbi, their teacher. But this was unheard of for the rabbi, the leader, to step down from that elevated position to get underneath his station in society and to do the dirty work, to wash the feet of his followers. Jesus is doing something radical, something crazy, something that's really messing with his disciples' minds and maybe even their hearts. Jesus washes their feet. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. I love verse 8. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. You shall never wash my feet. I put the emphasis on you and my, because in the Greek words, the emphasis is there. In the original language this, this, this New Testament was recorded in, they emphasized those two words, you and my. Simon Peter's his mind is blown. He's like, you, no, you're the teacher, you're the Messiah. He already knows Jesus is God incarnate. I can't let you wash my feet. Don't you see how dirty I am? I'm below, I'm beneath, I'm filthy, I'm covered in Sin, I'm just too dirty for your cleanliness to come in contact with me. This is not right. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Now that's a good response if Peter would have said it with some humility. But as I read this, I detect a note, and maybe you do too, of pride. Oh, well then, in that case, Lord, go ahead and give me the full Jesus shower. I'll take it all. Just give me the full meal deal. I'll take the whole wash job. Get my head, get, just get it all. There's a little bit of religious um, pride, I think, in what Peter is saying, how he answers. He's like, I, I don't want you, the humility kind of fades away. I, I don't want you to do, I'm, I'm below, but, but oh, well, if that's what it takes, then count me in. I want to be on the inner circle. I want to be part of the Jesus group. And I think about that response that Simon Peter gives. And I think that Simon Peter at this point does not understand. Just like Jesus said, you don't understand, but you're going to. You don't understand right now, but you're going to. And because Simon Peter didn't understand, he couldn't stand the thought of it. And then when Jesus said, but you can't have any part of me, if I don't do it, he's like, well, then give me the whole deal. He steps into a, a sinful kind of pride, and I see in him some of myself, and maybe you see some of yourself as well. See, what Jesus is offering him is a physical cleansing. That physical cleansing, the washing of his feet, is very like the spiritual cleansing that Jesus is about to provide via the cross. And he is showing, he is demonstrating that all he wants is for us to receive humbly what He is offering, His sacrificial washing, cleansing, His gift of Himself. We don't see that the other disciples 
had anything like this to say. Nobody recorded what they said. I would assume that they humbly received what was probably very uncomfortable for them, very strange, a little foreign. But they received it humbly. Simon Peter had a pride problem and he did not receive it humbly. And I think you and I sometimes want what Jesus is offering. But like Simon Peter, we want it on our terms or in our time. We think that we can just have a little sprinkle of Jesus here or a full-on Jesus shower there and we can be cleaned up from our sins and, and then go on living in those sins. We can go get dirty again and get washed again and get dirty again and get washed again. There's some religious pride in this process that I think some of us live. Verse 10, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For Jesus knew who was going to betray him and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Ouch. How would you like to be Judas right in about that moment? You're sitting with all your friends. Nobody else knows that the temptation is in your heart. Nobody else knows the conversation you're about to have or have already had. Nobody else knows. You think you've got your sin all to yourself. You're not even sure you've crossed the line into sin yet. You're just dealing with the temptation. And all of a sudden, the teacher, the master Jesus, the Lord, says, not every one of you is clean. Ooh! Do you think Judas kind of got a little poke out of that? You think maybe a little tinge of, ouch, whoa, hold on, wait a second. Maybe I am dirty in this moment. Maybe what I'm thinking about is not a clean thought. Maybe I need to step back and reconsider. I think Jesus was giving Judas a prompt, a poke, a little bit of a second chance before he ever crossed over that line in the first place. I think there's also something else going on here. Jesus explaining, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. The rest of their body is clean. You think about that time, the, the, these people would have worn sandals everywhere they went, right? And so we know they were coming to celebrate the Passover festival, so, and they were, coming to, they were guests in another man's home. They were guests in somebody else's house, and so they would have bathed themselves. They would have gotten cleaned up, so they were ceremonially clean to come to the, uh, the, the celebration, but also so they wouldn't, you know, trash this guy's house or stink up the meal so bad because, you know, Walking around in the desert, they probably got a little funk on them. They got a little dirt. They got a little smell. They, they weren't real clean. So they would have bathed, but en route from wherever they bathed to the house where they were going to celebrate, to hang out, to have the feast together, their feet would have gotten dirty because they wore sandals. So Jesus makes this really cool illustration out of, hey, if you've been washed, you're clean. But sometimes you've got to get a little touch up. Your feet need to be cleaned up because you walk in a dirty world. And I think this is a challenge for some of us today who are walking with Christ, who have received the cleaning of Christ, but who maybe need to get back in line a little bit with some of the teaching, some of the things that Jesus wants us to do to get our hearts back in line with Jesus' heart. Because we slipped back into kind of the Simon Peter mode of I want my cleaning when I want it, how I want it, I want it my way right now or my way later because I want to keep living in my filth, in my dirtiness, in my sin. Jesus has got a lot of stuff going on as he does this whole foot washing thing. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done 
for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed to do them. Jesus just did something quite scandalous. He put himself in the servant's shoes. He literally stripped off his outer garment. He went in his underwear. He knelt down on his knees. He got filthy dirty with the funk off of the feet of his disciples. He messed their hearts up. He messed their minds up. And then to put the cherry on top, he said, now that I've done it, guess what? You need to do this too. You need to do as I have done because no servant is greater than his master. Jesus, several times during his ministry, said that he only did what he saw his father doing. He only said what he heard his father saying. Jesus is modeling for these men exactly what God the Father wants him to model for them. Exactly what God wants us to do and who he wants us to be. Servants, sacrificing ourselves, loving others. This is messing these guys up because it is radically different from the culture that they live in. How about for us? Is that any different from the culture that we live in today? Do you find yourself culturally taught, told, drawn, modeled, demonstrated to love others sacrificially, to put them in a higher place, even if you by society standards, reside in a higher place. If you're maybe a little wealthier, maybe you are uh, more educated, maybe you are superior to them in some kind of a command structure, uh, a pyramid of, of uh, you know, the, the workflow, you're their boss, manager, CEO, whatever. You find yourself being trained, being taught, being led to submit and put yourself beneath and serve those who work or live under you. Moms and dads serving our children. That's a tough one, isn't it? I thought those little boogers were supposed to serve me. That's why we have lots of kids, so they can mow the yard, clean the pool, clean the house, whatever they're supposed to do. But no, we're supposed to serve them and they us. It's an interesting thing Jesus has modeled. And he tells the disciples that they're to do likewise because they're no greater than him, their master. I wonder, did they get it? Sitting in that room that evening, having their feet washed by Jesus, the Messiah, God incarnate. Did they get it? Did they understand what He was showing them? If they didn't that night, I have to believe over the next 72 hours, they began to see the light. Because what happened next was Jesus' arrest, the mockery of a trial, His crucifixion, His death, his burial, and his resurrection. Surely on the other side of that, these men began to see what Jesus was modeling for them around the table that night as he knelt and washed their feet. He was modeling for them the second half of the greatest commandment. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second, he said, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's modeling loving your neighbor when he gets down on his knees and he washes the feet of the disciples, when he takes on the role of servant. 
He leaves his leadership role and he takes on a role of servant and he becomes a servant leader. Jesus is demonstrating love for these men, these men that the Bible said he loved right to the end. And then he teaches them to love one another as well. Do as I've done. Submit yourself. Get uncomfortable. Get dirty with other people's funk. Jesus got down and dirty, literally. Down and dirty to show us how to love, to model for us servant leadership. He demonstrated, if you would look in verses 3 through 5, He demonstrated for us that love is humble. Jesus knew the Father had put Him over all things and put all things under His power. Jesus had authority. He had position. He had power. He could have commanded any one of those disciples to have washed everybody's feet, including His own. But Jesus didn't tell them to do it. He modeled this love in humility. Verses 6 to 8, we find that love is transformational. He modeled a transformational love and He showed us that this love is necessary. In verses 6 to 8, you do not realize what I'm doing, uh, Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, you know what? Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. The washing, the cleansing of our spiritual dirt is transformational. It makes an eternal difference in the destination of our lives. Eternal difference. Transformational. And it's necessary. If you don't get cleansed, you have no part in Jesus. Verse 11, we see that love doesn't differentiate. I love this. He knew Judas was going to betray him. Jesus already knew that Judas was going to betray him. The temptation was there. Did he wash Judas' feet? Yes, he did. See, he loved him anyway. He loved Judas anyway. In spite of the filth, the dirt, the sunscreen, the bug spray, the sweat, all the junk that Judas stood before God, covered in this mess. And Jesus loved him anyway. And he loves you and he loves me anyway. He loves us anyway. Verses 12 to 15. Love is more powerful than any position Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, for rightly you do that because that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Jesus says that his position, his authority doesn't matter in the essence of love. Love is more powerful than that position or authority. Verse 16, that love is denying oneself. Love is denying oneself. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus denied himself and he did what he saw God doing and he said what he heard God saying. He submitted his will to God's will. And you see this played out over those next 72 hours when he stood in the garden sweating blood and saying, not my will, but yours, God. That's love. Finally, in verse 17, we see that love is active. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Love is a verb. 
an action word. You got to do something if you're going to love. Love is not something you feel. It's not something you think about. It's, not, it, it, it's, it's what you do. Jesus could have told the disciples how much he loved them. He could have told all of us over the history of time that he loves us all. But if Jesus didn't do the loving thing, if he didn't pay the price, if he didn't go to the cross, if he didn't resurrect from the dead, we'd all still be filthy, dirty, hell-bound, sin-stained men and women. Love is a verb. It's active. We have to do something with love. Love is to be lived out radically. Jesus lived it out radically. This was a radical thing. This was off the charts, unheard of, uncharted territory, craziness, scandalous act of love that Jesus did. Love is to be demonstrated sacrificially as Jesus demonstrated sacrificially His love for His disciples and for us. But before we can live this life of love, before we can do radical loving things, before we can do sacrificial loving things, we must receive that love first. We've got to be cleansed. We've got to be washed of our own dirt if we're going to be able to live the love of Jesus. We can't do it in our own right. We can't do it in our own power. Seriously, going all the way back to the garden, all the way into the future, nobody will be able to do that. Jesus was the only one. But by His washing, by His cleansing, by the ridding ourselves of the spiritual dirt in our lives, we then can love as Jesus loved. We can be radical in our demonstration of sacrificial love. We've got to be washed like Peter and the disciples were washed. And the washing today for you and me goes back to those verses where we started today, where the Apostle Paul said, we receive that cleansing through faith. We receive that cleansing through faith, which is believing what we can't prove. I can't stand before you today and give you a scientific explanation and rock-solid, definitive proof that Jesus is who He says He is, the one and only Son of God. I believe this 100%, cover to cover, top of the page, back of the page, front of the page, bottom of the page, every page. But I can't prove it. I have incredible faith in it because I've seen it active in my life. I have seen the difference between when I lived in dirt and filth and since I've been cleaned by Christ. I believe that Jesus is who He says He is, God's one and only Son. And I believe that Jesus does what He says He will do. He has washed me, cleansed me, freed me from the eternal consequence of my own filth, my sin. For you, I don't know. Do you have that faith? If you don't, there's no time like this time. I'm going to pray in a moment. And if you're sitting there this morning questioning, do I believe Jesus is who He says He is? Do I believe that Jesus does what He says He will do? Have I ever confessed that to Him? Have I ever told Him that? Have I ever asked for the washing that I can receive from Him? Have I ever asked for the relationship that I can have with the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And if you haven't, or if you're not sure, then I want you to pray as I pray. If you all would bow your heads with me.
Heavenly Father, first I thank you this morning for this phenomenal facility. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the washing, the cleansing that you have done in my life to bring me to this point. A sin-stained man like me. A phenomenal failure in many, many ways. And yet you have washed me and by your washing you allow me to be a part of your family and a leader in your church to stand on this stage and have you speak through me your words of love to demonstrate God physically how you love me and how you love others. Thank you, Jesus. Father, for those that have been washed and are here this morning and simply need to have their feet washed to stay in line, clean, and with you. God, I thank you for them and pray, God, that they would continue to submit to your authority, to love you as you love them, and to live out your love radically, demonstrating it to others in many, many ways, just as you demonstrated it by washing feet and by going to the cross to take our sin away, to cleanse us by your blood. God, I know there are some here this morning who are far away from you, who maybe have never heard before that they need to have faith that you are who you say you are, that you do what you say you'll do, that you can cleanse them, save them, free them from the filth in their lives, that inner dirt that hides in the deep recesses of our hearts. God, I pray for them this morning that you would speak clearly that they would hear your words in their heart. That they would understand, God, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They're not alone in their sin. And they're not free from it. Unless they've been washed by you. And so now, Lord, I'm going to give them, as you lead me, an opportunity to receive that washing. If that's you this morning, if you're sitting there with that hurt in your heart, that dirt that hides and keeps you filthy, you may pretend like you're clean. You may look like you're clean. You may even smell like you're clean. But you know in your heart you're filthy dirty. Covered in all the sin of your life. If that's you, pray like this this morning. Jesus, I do believe you are who you say you are. God's one and only Son. I can't explain it. Don't even fully understand it maybe. But God, I have faith. I have faith. I believe to the best of my ability. I believe that you do what you say you'll do. That you'll free me from my sin. Wash me of the dirt and filth in my life. I believe that your sacrificial death paid the penalty for me. And I want to receive that cleansing, that washing, and be free this morning. I confess that I am a sinner. I confess that I am dirty. But I want to be clean. I want to follow you and have a relationship with you, Jesus, and let you lead so that I don't return to my dirty ways. If you prayed that this morning, then you crossed the line of faith, stepped into a brand new relationship with the Lord. That you can be freed from your dirt, taken out, of your eternal consequence. Doesn't mean you'll never sin again. Doesn't mean your past sins won't return, raise their ugly heads. But it means you won't have to pay the penalty eternally 
and you this morning will not enjoy living in that sin anymore, but you'll seek out a cleaner life, a life that reflects the sacrificial love of Jesus. Father, again, this morning has been an awesome privilege to serve you, to come into this place as Elevation Church, to worship you, to sing praises to you, not for what you've done, but for who you are, for you are God and we are not. We are sinners in need of a Savior, and you sent your Son to free us from the dirt of our lives, and we are grateful. We pray this in his name.